quality of our lives is directly proportional to the quality of questions we ask ourselves. We are turning to retired Navy SEAL Rich Devaney. What the Navy SEALs actually are is we are masters of uncertainty. And the founder of a business called The Attributes. Courage as an attribute is the ability to step into our fear. A keynote speaker alongside Simon Sinek's Optimus. Be resolute in the outcome, but be flexible in your approach. And that's how, that's how you should approach any goal. G'day, g'day. Welcome back to another episode of A Lot to Talk About. It is your boy, the captain of the ship, the man in charge, Bradley J. Drybra. As always, it's a pleasure to be here. It's actually a Friday evening, nine o'clock, because we're doing a virtual pod here today. If you're not watching, you wouldn't be able to tell that. If you're listening, um, hopefully you can't tell. Hopefully the quality is as amazing, but I'm very excited to be here today. As most of you who already listened to the show would know, I identify my purpose as uplifting and inspiring hope in others through story. And I honestly believe that today's guest is really going to allow me to tap into that and allow you to tap into um, maybe a little spoiler here, the best attributes within you and the ways that you can work on being the best version of yourself in individual and team environments. He's a retired Navy SEAL and the founder of a business called The Attributes, which is all neuroscience backed. He is a keynote speaker alongside Simon Sinek's Optimus. And he's just an unbelievable human being, or I should say an incredible human being, because I bloody believe it after listening to this man's story. So from your home, your car, or wherever you are, give a very warm welcome to the one, the only, Mr. Rich Davini. Well, thank you, Bradley. It's great to be here. So thanks for having me. Mate, the pleasure's all mine. Did I get your surname right? You did, yeah, very good. Amazing. Well, mate, like I said, it's such a pleasure. You know, for me, I come across you the first time and I, I was tapping into, I think it might have been after my interview with Dean Stott, who okay, was also yeah. in the Special Forces. And, Good and friend of mine. Across, Good friend of mine. Yeah. And, and I think that's originally where we tapped in. And I was sort of looking at the work that you'd done and I was like, I couldn't believe that I hadn't come across you beforehand because a lot of the people who I really enjoy listening to and connecting with through the podcast world, like Andrew Huberman, Lewis Howes had all sat down and interviewed you. He obviously worked very closely with Simon Sinek. And I thought this man's in great company. So he's obviously got some really interesting things to say. And then amongst sort of diving into some of your work, um, without getting too deep into it, I was really impressed with what you do. And as I said in the intro, it feels very relevant to most of the people listening. So I'm very excited to be tapping into that today. And before we do, though, I was just curious because I think you're a very, from what I can tell, a very driven guy and a guy who thinks quite deeply and feels quite connected to his work, what would you say you identify as your purpose within your life? Yeah, that's a, that's a doozy to start with. It's great. I love it. Um, yeah, so I, I, one of the things that drives me is uh, human potential and how, how far and uh, fast human beings can go and not really limited you know obviously a lot of times we think about that as in terms of athletics or physical or physicality but i'm really fascinated by the fact that human beings um are the only species as at least as far as we know uh that can visualize something that does not exist and bring it into existence and ultimately that's what's caused us to go from cave dwellers to space explorers right um so so what are those things about us that allow us to do that and and Ultimately, what is it about ourselves and what is it about our understanding our own performance, our own engines that can allow human beings to say, okay, 
what can what can what what drives me and what are those things about me that can that can cause a step into challenge uncertainty and fear and stress and and a step into discovery and so so that type of elemental human performance what are those drivers those key drivers uh about us as humans that allow us and can explain our performance especially during times of challenge uncertainty and stress because that's really what is required for potential you have to lean into challenge uncertainty and stress so so i'm really interested in deconstructing what it is about us that allows us to do that to do that and on a human level each one of us comes to the comes to the plate with different qualities different elements that allow us to do that so 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 long answer but that's what i'm really fascinated about well mate long answer but bloody worth a while because that was one hell of a of a basically description of your purpose and i love what you said there about us as we know it being the only beings that are able to tap into or visualize something and bring it to life i've actually never thought of it in that way before but that's a beautiful description and and i love what you said there about leaning into stress leaning into challenge because quite often i feel like in our in our very busy lives and the lives that we lead stress has become almost this negative buzzword this thing that we're supposed to move away from and yeah. there's obviously negative stress and positive stress that actually challenges growth and encourages growth can we talk about that a little bit because obviously your background i mentioned it in the intro being in the navy seals that's a very stress-induced environment if i'm yeah. correct yeah it is it is uh, and it's funny a lot of people know about the navy seals now it's 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 been fascinating it was a fascinating journey for me and, and my and my compadres, my brothers, uh, because all of us, at least my peer group, we joined the SEALs in the mid-90s. And very few people knew what Navy SEALs were back then. And so to have lived this acceleration of popularity has been interesting. But you're right. Um, most people understand the SEALs, the Navy SEALs, as this one of the toughest units on the planet because we have some of the toughest training on the planet. And um, again, you know, to go through Navy SEAL training, which is nicknamed buds basic underwater demolition slash seal training and it's out in san diego california it's six months long but it's a 90 percent attrition rate so only 10 percent of the people who start make it through and it's because of the uh the the toughness of the training um but the the idea is i think being part of that community uh for 20 years going through training running training you know and i didn't run basic training i ran a very specialized training but everything about Navy SEAL training, regardless of where you're running it, is about throwing guys into challenge, uncertainty, and stress. And the reason is, is quite quite simple. It's because the Navy SEALs, it, you know, the way I define the Navy SEALs, it's not about uh, being expert shots or scuba divers or skydivers. What the Navy SEALs actually are is we are masters of uncertainty. We are a group of people designed and ready to be able to drop into environments of deep complexity and problem solve and figure it out. Uh, and so I became real fascinated on why that is and what causes that. <clears throat> because ultimately, when you look at uh, Navy SEAL training, training is kind of a misnomer. BUDS is all about really getting your ass kicked. That's what it is. I mean, you do, you train to do a couple things, but you spend hundreds of hours running around with heavy boats on your head and hundreds of hours exercising with 300 pound telephone poles and freezing in the surf zone. And I thought about it as I was putting together this material when I was still active and, of course, after. I've done hundreds of combat missions overseas. I've done thousands of training evolutions. Never on one of them did I carry a heavy boat on my head or a 300 pound telephone pole, right? Which, told, which tells you something. It tells you when they make you do that in SEAL training, it's not about training you to be Navy SEALs, it's not about training you in the skills 
of shooting and, and diving and, and skydiving. It's about teasing out, putting in these environments to tease out these unique qualities, these hidden attributes to see if you have what it takes to be a Navy SEAL. Do you, and, and, and it's a really important distinction. And one more story, which I'll share with you, which kind of highlights that is, is a story I heard about <clears throat> before it happened before I came, came in the teams. Again, I went through training in the mid nineties. Um, and, and what, one of the things you had to do back then, first thing you had to do when you showed up to training was jump in the pool and swim 50 meters. So you swam 25 meters to one end and swam 25 meters back. And the story goes that this kid jumps in the pool, he sinks right to the bottom when he jumps in and he, he proceeds to walk across the bottom of the pool to one side and then walk back on the bottom of the pool to the other side. And he comes up and he's gasping for air. And uh, the instructor looks at him and says, what the heck are you doing? And the, the kid looks at the instructor and says, I'm sorry, instructor, I don't know how to swim. And the instructor looks at him for a second and says, that's okay, we can teach you how to swim, right? And the reason why he said that is because the instructor knew if this kid had the balls to show up to SEAL training, the most elite maritime unit on the planet, not knowing how to swim, he had everything inside of him that we needed to train him to be a Navy SEAL. We could teach him anything we wanted. All we knew that he had the, now that instructor knew that that kid had the gumshoe to, to, to be a SEAL. The, the teaching of the skills was gonna be easy at that point. Um, and so that's the idea is that our performance, especially during times of challenge and stress are informed by these hidden qualities, informed by things that we don't necessarily see on the surface every day. And that's what I'm interested in digging into. That story there, that's an incredible way of, you know, one of the questions I had for you today, and you almost answered it in that story. Well, you actually bang on answered it to maybe to decipher it for the audience who haven't looked into your work as much. That kind of separates the difference between the skill being swimming and the attribute being that courage. Right. And I, I really want to tap into that a little bit later, but I am quite curious. You know, I look at the Navy SEALs, and as you said, it's become incredibly popular. It's become far more known about the Navy SEALs due to a number of people who are quite in the public eye, um, who, who, like yourself, have incredible qualities and skill sets that they're providing within their workplaces or within the work that they do outside of the SEALs now. And it's become quite popular to talk about. And we've heard all the bud stories and all of that. And right, I, don't, right. I don't want to bore you with any of that today. I'm sure you've spoken about it thousands of times. But what I'm really curious about is there is this incredible almost success rate, I would say, from the outside looking in as to people who have been within that Navy SEALs organisation, within those teams, seem to come out of the SEALs, walk into other areas of their life and have incredible success. I believe that's because of what you talk about, the attributes that they have as, as individuals, as human beings, to be successful in that space requires a special something and the ability to develop that special something. But what really, really interests me is those special attributes that get you through Navy SEALs training, that get you through BUDS, make you successful in that space of work, and then on from there within your life. Is that something you felt like you had when you walked into BUDS or was that developed over the course of your Navy SEALs career? Yeah, great question. I don't know if at that age, I mean, I was 22 years old when I went to BUDS and some of my classmates were 18 years old. We were all young kids almost. Um, so I'm not sure if I had the, that any of those thoughts walking into BUDS. I think it's been in, in the retrospect and introspection since that you can kind of think about those questions. And when I do, I would say that uh, I would say that every single person who starts SEAL training and makes it through has elements of these things already. They have to because you can't um, you can't make it through day one if you don't have those things. Um, so 
So as I talk about these attributes being innate, kind of there's a nature nurture quality. Anybody who gets through SEAL training has already either developed or come to the table with some of these key attributes. Once they, well, as they're in SEAL training, of course, as they go through a SEAL, a Navy SEAL career, yes, those things are going to be hyper-developed. They're just going to get better and better at doing that. But I would say, so I would say that there's a nature nurture, but yeah, because attributes have a nature nurture, there is an element that we show up to the table with, and then the training simply just um, exploits those, so to speak. Yeah, definitely. You just said it there, nature nurture. So for everyone listening and, and watching on right here, that's definitely something that, you know, attributes are something you can develop, you can work on, you can continue to nurture those, right? I'm really curious as to whether you think there's a pecking order of attributes. Like, and, and I could be completely out here because your work's probably opened my eyes up quite a bit to the difference in skills and attributes and what they're actually defined as and what they look like on the surface. Is there a pecking order or is it more so individual and is it more important based on the situations or the scenarios you're putting yourself in, into within your yeah. life? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm qualified to, to answer it, whether or not there's a pecking order. I think maybe a psychologist or a behavioralist uh, behaviorist can could probably answer that better. I would say I hesitate to put them in a pecking order uh, because everybody shows up with different levels of each one. However, so I don't fully dodge the question, I would say that um, I would say that when I when I look at the attributes, I think um, the grit attributes, so courage, adaptability, resiliency, and um, perseverance, I think those, if I were to pick the most probably the most important ones for human beings, just in in everyday life, I would say those are them. And the reason why I would say that is because if if a human being doesn't have uh, at least a, a, an assemblance of each one of those, it's going to be a rough ride. Life is going to be a rough ride. Um, all the other ones, um, I, I wouldn't. I would say that they they speak to how well you can do those grit ones, right? And how well you can do in external environments. You know, the drive ones. You know, there there are some very gritty people who aren't driven, right? So you can have a preponderance of the grit attributes in someone, and they're not driven people, so they don't really go places. Uh, and I'd say the same thing about mental acuity. Same thing about leadership and team ability. So. So my answer would be, I think the grit ones are the most important in day-to-day, -day, everyday life. And, um, and if you really uh, kind, of, uh, kind of neck it down even further, I would say that courage is probably the most important one. And, I, and so there's a reason why I put courage as the very first attribute of the book that I talk about, because, because the cu courage as an attribute is the ability to step into our fear. And, um, and that is, is probably the single most important quality that uh, that has to occur, has to happen before any of the other ones do. And so that's how I would kind of prioritize those, if you will. When, when you said that just there, that really struck a chord with me because it's almost like you've had access to my journal, right? So I journal quite a bit. I like to write either every morning or every night when my head's sort of free and, and fresh. And I was going through a bit of an exercise recently and I was writing around sort of my values or the attributes that I want to live live towards and, and work towards developing in my life and that I kind of put them in, I kind of went and put them in a pecking order, not a pecking order as far as like one to five, but mm -hmm. the five that I value the most right now at this point in my life. And two of the things that you spoke about just there were, were within those values and one of them was resilience. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you know much about my story. Maybe when we connected, there was a little bit discussed, but I've got cystic fibrosis and um, basically, you know, I've got the most severe style of cystic fibrosis with liver disease and diabetes as well. And over the course of the last two years, one of my biggest challenges being consistent bleeds in my lungs. Mm-hmm. And I'm very, very lucky that the environment I grew up in and the start to my life was extremely positive. I had very supportive family. I had incredibly supportive doctors around me. But my first doctor had this really negative story that he tried to push on my parents and they luckily were so strong and pushed that away and decided to be more optimistic about my future. That was really bred into me. And I'm so, so grateful that over the course of the last two years, as I've faced these challenges, that resilience that was born from optimism literally has powered me through that to then go on and do some stuff that I'm really proud of over the course of the last two years. You know, I've run a couple of marathons with bleeding lungs. So I feel really proud of that. But then the other one that really sort of struck a chord with me there was this value or this attribute of courage. And courage is something that I identify strongly with in some areas of my life. And in other areas of my life, I feel like it's really lacking. And what I discovered when I dived into this and why I felt like that was in the areas of my life in which I have, I guess, complete control over, whether it's my career, um, my happiness, my health, I am extremely courageous. I left my job to pursue a podcast and create a speaking business full time. I sold my property to dive into this full time because I knew it wouldn't pay me for a while. I have stepped away from other areas of my life. I've challenged my health. I've come through those moments that have required resilience with courage. But when it comes to relationships, I lack that little bit of courage because it's one thing where a part of that is out of my control. Yeah. How much do our circumstances and situations in life differ and sway or or have impact on the attributes that we're trying to live towards and develop yeah it's a it's a great it's a great question and a great topic to bring up because because these attributes are in fact contextual right we can't just because we're high in courage on one thing doesn't necessarily mean that transfers to being high in courage on another thing uh just because we're i always kind of use patience as the example you could be you could be extremely patient with your own kids I'm, i'm really patient with my own kids I'm not so patient with other people's kids, right? So it doesn't. So it doesn't. It doesn't necessarily translate. But the uh, the what 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 you one of the keys to helping that those attributes translate and cross contexts is to pick out the similarities. Uh, one of the things you said struck me. And I love your story. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to. I was excited to speak with you because sure. uh, let's just talk about the grid attributes and and just for your audience and and you to understand those grid attributes show up in different walks of life, right? I mean, I consider you, because of what you've accomplished, because of what you've done, um, more gritty than than me and more gritty than a lot of the Navy SEALs I, I, I know, um, because you have gone through struggles that we would never experience, right? Our struggles are different than yours, certainly, but, but, but this is the beauty of these, of these attributes, is you can, you can find people's uh, people's achievement of them and and their their actualization of them in so many different walks of life, so many different contexts that are really very admirable um, and uh, and awe, and 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 inspirational and awe inspiring as 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 I am with you and your story. Um, but you just talk about your courage. I mean, you know, you say you know your courage sometimes doesn't feel like it shows up 
in environments where you don't have as much control. But what you're missing is that in those environments where your courage has showed up, um, probably unbeknownst to you, you haven't had control. That's why you've needed courage, you know, to step out of your your current comfort zone and sell your property to start a podcast. Those were things that you didn't have control. You didn't have control over the outcome. You stepped into that courage. And so what I would what I would offer to you is that when you want to translate contexts of these attributes and courage specifically, maybe it's relationships, the same courage that you've used in other contexts of your life um, have required you to cede control. Okay. Um, it doesn't it didn't feel like it because it was a different type of control that you were seeding and you didn't really process it consciously. You were kind of like, okay, there was a there was a different type of fear there, perhaps. But all you need to do is say, I'm going to step into my discomfort in this other context, in the in the relationship context. And in doing so, I'm going to cede control the same way I did when I stepped away from my job and started a podcast when I sold my property. Same thing, different context. It's going to feel a little bit more fearful, right? And that's okay. Mm-hmm. But, but, but just recognize what, what you need to recognize about fear and what everybody does. And you read this in the book and fear encourages that when you step into your fear, and this is where, you know, my buddy, Andrew Huberman, which I know you, you're a big fan of Andrew, Andrew and I, you know, have, have explored together for hours and hours about this. And he, he ran a lab, he's still part of his lab was studying fear. And, um, and one of the things they discovered was that when you choose to step into your fear when you choose to take that step fight when you choose the fight response which is which is quite literally i'm stepping into my fear you are rewarded with a dopamine uh response in your in your biochemistry and again we know dopamine if you don't know dopamine watch huberman's podcast on dopamine it's it's fantastic but dopamine a neuromodulator is a is a is a is a chemical in our system that tells us this is good keep doing this right it's a motivation chemical and we and we as human beings are rewarded when we step in. We're rewarded with dopamine when we step into something that we we are fearful of. That's a really incredibly powerful piece of news. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, this, that piece of knowledge alone, that one piece of knowledge alone, explains the fact, explains why we are cave dwellers that have gone to space explorers. It explains in one concept human evolution, right? Um, because that's because physiologically nature has just decided to reward us when we try, reward us when we step out, reward us when we discover. So all this to say, you can cross context with these attributes. You can practice your courage in, in these other contexts <clears throat> in some of the same ways you've done it in other contexts. Just recognize that don't sell yourself short. You actually have stepped out of side your comfort zone into areas that you have not been able to control. You've ceded control in other aspects of your life so that you may be courageous. All you have to do is say, well, now I want to try it in this, in this aspect or this aspect or this context. Going to, feel be- going to feel a little bit more challenging. I won't lie to you. Um, you'll feel a little bit more of that amygdala arousal, right? But, uh, but you'll be rewarded for it at the end of the day. You know what? It's, listening to you, Rich, is you do such a good job of explaining things simply because that hit the nail on the head for me and it, it actually tapped into something that I read this morning or listened to, I should say, on another podcast. And there was this lady, she was a therapist, and she was talking about our negative self-talk and our, I guess, the, the narratives and stories we tell ourselves about ourselves that then dictate our negative behaviours towards the way that we see ourselves in life and the way that we re- re- react in other situations. And she said that the behaviours won't change until the thought does. 
And yeah. that kind of struck me with what you said there, like, and and also what you're talking about with dopamine, I guess it's it's why people find breakthroughs in exercise and yeah. in dopamine releasing um, adventures, because just what you were saying, it just, it just makes me think about so how simple it is, but how challenging it is at the same time. The theory of it is simple. It just takes that action consistently, right, to break down those narratives and those stories yes. and tap into you know, where those attributes are born and, and how we can adapt them and, and I guess, translate them across different areas of our life. Yeah, we, totally. Can, and let me just, let me just quickly um, um, uh, hang on one of the things you said, because I think it's really important. The behaviors don't change until the thoughts change first, right? And this is what we have to understand the order of information as it comes through our system, right? We as human beings, there's a specific order of information as we kind of uh, view and experience the world everything first comes into our bodies through sensation, right? And it, 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 it's processed through our nervous system. And we all have, we all know there are five senses, you know, taste, uh, uh, touch, taste, smell, uh, eyesight, hearing. Um, that all comes in as a sensation first. From that sensation, there is, there is uh, created a perception, right? So whatever that say sensation is, there's a perception that we have of it, okay? And oftentimes that's influenced by what we've seen before, okay? Our brains, our hippocampus, stores all of these categories and context of these things, these experiences that we've seen before. So, so when a sensation comes in, the first thing it does is try to compare it to something we've seen before. Okay. But it gives us a perception of that experience of that sensation. Then from there, there's generated an emotion. Okay. That emotion could be anything, could be happiness, sadness. Those, those first three things are largely outside of our control. They're, they're kind of a limbic response to our environment. The next two things, however, are in our control because this is when we get into our frontal lobe right frontal lobe uh, uh you know designed for gives us our ability to think logically and make decisions right after emotion there generates a thought okay and that goes into our frontal lobe from that thought we then get action okay that's the behavior that's the back end we can actually because that thought behavior piece is in our frontal lobe that's where we can, can take we can we can take control so just like you said and just like you heard this morning we can be we can actualize we can affect our behavior by understanding those first three things you know are not necessarily in our control but once we have that emotion it's our decision how are we going to now process that thought how are we going to change our thought deliberately and then how are we going to take action so it's really important what you said because we all as human beings have this ability a choice point between emotion and thought that we can take control and we can do something very proactively and that's a really important uh um uh, an accessible skill that every one of us has. Yeah, I love that. It's so true. And it's something that I'm trying to work on a lot. Like, you know, I look at the last two years of my life and, and I've been really privileged as I'm sure you're, you know, you could probably agree with this too. In your position, chatting to the people you chat to, you not only get to speak to people and educate other people, but you educate yourself. Yeah. And over the course of the last two years, you know, You'll be the, I think, the 114th guest episode of my podcast. And, you know, every one of those people is smarter than me in, mm -hmm. in areas of life, and I get to learn from them. And sitting here talking to you now, I almost feel as though um, I'm a student in class for the first time, like I'm learning so much on the go and trying to process this for the audience so that it, you know, makes sense to them and they get something great from it too. And, and it is a real privilege but there's this notion that me and my mates have been talking about lately and it's this idea 
sorry, mate, you just clicked off the screen there. This idea that with self-awareness comes short-term pain for long-term gain. Yeah. And when you're more self-aware, when you continue to tap into that and to educate yourself on these areas of life to ideally um, be optimal in your performance, then you realize there's so much you don't have figured out. And there's maybe so much that you actually need to scrap from what you thought you'd learned and understood about yourself and the world and yeah. go back and relearn it. Yeah. And over the course of your journey thus far, how has that experience been? Because like I said, you're not only very intelligent yourself, but you sit in rooms with extremely intelligent people. How often are these ideas and things that you thought were so solid before being changed and challenged? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great idea. It's a great concept. And I agree with you. And I don't consider myself intelligent. I consider myself like you. I, I like to surround myself with people who I can learn from. I've tried to make it a habit to surround myself with people who I feel are much better than me. And that happens every, that goes all the way back to the beaches of SEAL training. I remember just being around, I remember getting through SEAL training. We started with 160 odd people and we graduated 30 something. And that's normal numbers, right? But I remember looking around, I was like, how the heck did I get here? I'm surrounded by people who are way better than me. And I got excited and I got, got driven, right? Um, so A, surround yourself with people who are better than you. <clears throat> B, I think, I think the other thing that I really would say is that we all have to, I believe, create what I call habits of introspection. Um, and the reason is because I kind of consider ourselves, I like the analogy that we are all automobiles, okay? Kind of like the movie Cars. Some of us though are Ferraris, some of us are Jeeps, some of us are SUVs, right? Now there's no judgment there because the Ferrari can do things the Jeep can't do and the Jeep can do things the Ferrari can't do. But we, it behooves us to lift our engine or lift our hood and look at what kind of engine we're running with, what kind of vehicle we are, because, because we may find that we're a Jeep that's been trying to run our Ferrari track or a Ferrari that's been trying to run a Jeep track. And again, there's nothing wrong with that either, but understanding our engine allows us to now make distinctions about ourselves and our performance and allows us to make better decisions about what we can do to enhance our performance, right? There are tens of thousands of tips, tools, and techniques out there to enhance performance, to do better, to go faster, better, stronger, right? But they're not one size fit all, right? I mean, you know, and you start understanding that, well, if I'm a Jeep, then maybe those nitrous oxide packs are not a good idea to put on my engine. Maybe I have to put something else on there. So that introspection allows you to really understand and start tweaking your engine uniquely for yourself. And I think that takes introspection. It takes open-mindedness. And in terms of my experience, that open-mindedness and that curiosity has allowed me to understand that I, I want to I wanna know what engine I'm working with. And because as we go through our lives, we get older, you know, as every car does, how does my engine change over time? You know, what can I do? You know, once I have, you know, there's a different, there's a difference between the engine that has you know, 5,000 miles on it and the engine that has, you know, 100,000 miles on it. What are some things that you can or can't do? What are those things you want to do? You might want to, you know, put a little bit better gasoline in your engine, right? Eat better. You might want to, you know, go uh, go to the mechanic once in a while, a little bit more often to have some checkups, you know. Um, so what are those ways that you can actually continually understand and tweak your engine as you go through your life? And that's really fascinating. But I think that's the secret to to success, to be honest with you. Yeah, I love that. Is there, a, is there a suggestion that you'd have that maybe you've worked with personally that you think is a great way of being introspective? Um, well, curiosity, if you, if, you are not, if you are not curious, and again, there's difference between curiosity and open-mindedness, okay? And, and 
And in the book, I talk about open-mindedness because open-mindedness is, is a little bit more generalized and a little bit more ubiquitous. Open-mindedness, I would describe as a passive act of uh, being open to other experiences, to new things. So the, the, but curiosity, there's a proactivity. So the, the example would be if I come visit you um, in Australia and I say, okay, Bradley, um, or I, I, I get there and you're like, okay, Rich, I'm going to take you to the most authentic Australian restaurant, okay, to, to eat the most authentic Australian food. And I say to you, okay, cool, I'm, I'm, I'm down for that, right? That's open-mindedness. Curiosity is I come see you in Australia and you're like, uh, you're like, and I say to you, hey, Bradley, can you please take me to the most authentic Australian? I want to eat the most authentic Australian. That's curiosity. That's a, there's a proactivity there. There's a, there's an action there. Um, and I think, I think the most successful people I've seen and learned from, they don't just have open-mindedness, they have curiosity and they have curiosity specifically about themselves. Um, and that curiosity is buttressed by humility, okay? Because humility has to, you know, humility says, okay, when I start discovering these things about myself, I want to be humble about the idea that I'm not good at certain things. I may not, I may not like what I discover. I may find that, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm running with a really low quality carburetor, but okay, that's, that's what I am, right? That's, and I'm going to figure out how to maximize that. So I think curiosity and humility are the key two things for that habit of introspection. Yeah, that, mate, that's such a good point. I love that. And just in case you were curious, if you did come over to Australia, I'd probably take you to the Bunnings Warehouse for a sausage singer with a bit of tomato sauce. There you go. Uh, just in case, just in case. And I'd, lo I'd love to do it. I'd, and I'd be open-minded to do that. So uh, yeah. that'd be great. <laughs> Perfect. Mate, I absolutely love everything that you're saying here. And for me, it feels like there's so many key takeaways for everybody listening. And it makes me really curious as to why you didn't just do this work for yourself like what made you go you know what i want to create the attributes and i want to actually help people in their workplaces in their lives to feel better about the way that they perform to perform optimally like what was the driving force for you i know you spoke about that purpose at the beginning is that purpose something you've discovered once you begin in the company or is it something that really willed you to create this Gosh, I think to answer that second question first, I think um, I think it's a little bit of both. I think I've always been fascinated and, and interested in human potential and the idea to help others discover theirs in the process of discovering mine, I think has always been a, a driver for me. And and in addition, as you go down those roads and you do that work, you discover even more about your your purpose and what you enjoy. Um, so I think I think uh, I think there's there's two different avenues for that one, both. Um, both are, are very, uh, both contribute a great deal. Um, in terms of what caused me to, to, to do this and, and, uh, and not just focus on myself, I think there's a couple answers there. One is, one is a little bit more, um, uh, uh, I guess, um, a little bit more um, generous and, and, um, and kind to myself. And that is, I like the idea of helping people. Okay, um, and I think I think most human beings do. It feels good. I like the idea of uh, of of explaining things to people about my experience, about the Navy SEAL experience, that can be relatable to them. Um, I think the work that a lot of the the Navy SEALs do out there, whether it's the the Jockos, the Gogginses, or, or or the other all the other folks out there, fantastic work. I think they have f phenomenal stuff, and I and I absorb it and I read it and I think it's great. Um, one of the things I do when I read that is sometimes say, okay, well, 
what's a what's a way that I can explain that to someone who might find it difficult to relate? Okay, um, because uh, because sometimes the Navy SEAL stuff can be very um, hard to relate to and, and and very niched in the way and in the in the demographic of people that it 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 attracts, right? Um, sure, we're going to be very any Navy SEAL stuff is going to be very attractive to uh, a male between the ages of you know sixteen and and sixty, right? That's a great easy demographic. But how can you maybe make that Navy SEAL stuff relatable to other demographics who may mm. who may want to find and draw strength from that? Uh, that's that really that that project interests me, and it's probably why I I, I enjoy trying to take uh, interesting and sometimes difficult concepts and then making them a little bit more uh, a little bit more simple to understand a little bit more relatable the other one that's a little bit less uh, easy to admit is that um, it's sometimes a lot easier to talk about this stuff with others than to do it yourself <laughs> and uh, and I still I, I to this day I still struggle in a good way in in practicing these things so part of my part of my part of my self-improvement project is to is to absorb and process and write about these things and explain these things so that I might be able to do them better. Um, you know, none of us are are uh, are perfect super performers. You know, we are all on our own pathway. We all struggle with certain things, and so I think the 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 idea and the effort I put into explaining these sums these things also help me try to do it better for myself. Uh, so, so there's a little bit of an ulterior motive there as well. Yeah, I really want to tap into that first answer that you gave there. And it actually made me think of a conversation I had on Monday. So on Monday, I spoke at a pharmaceutical conference. And basically, my role there at that conference was to share my story with the audience. And it was actually, it was exciting, because it's the first time seeing people face to face in a big room again in Australia. And it was nice to go up on stage and share my experience and living with CF and I guess the, the journey that I've been on or the quest that I've been on over the course of the last few years. And we were speaking about the reason behind why I wanted to start sharing the challenges that I had with CF. And I think you said it there where you said, sometimes it's hard for people to relate to just the grit and the stuff that I guess it's very easy to market off the back of the Navy SEALs and how things are learned and you know, what you have to become or how you have to evolve into this elite, elite performer, essentially. And I realized that at a certain point, I'm so optimistic as a human being and I'm so positive all the time that I was never really sharing my challenges or struggles because I didn't want it to feel as though I was, I was seeking um, some sort of like round of applause or pat on the back from anyone. Right. But then what I started to realize was that it become unrelatable for people living with cystic fibrosis because they face challenges every day. Mm -hmm. You know, I've, I've been very lucky to have an incredible health and I've worked hard for that despite my few challenges. But most people with cystic fibrosis spend a couple of months of their year in hospital. And yeah. so people were seeing me want to go out and do these great things and being positive all the time and thought, well, I can't relate to that because I'm in hospital right now. Yeah. And then I realized that the key was to be optimistic, but authentic. Right. And the minute that I started to share the struggles, but then shed a positive light on them to look at them with a bit of perspective, it opened things up for me and it changed the game. And it's literally powered what I've done the last two years of my life. Yeah. And I think that speaks to exactly what you mean there, because 
it's easy to like, like I listened to Goggin's book and I'm not sure that I want to go to the stuff that that guy does. Yeah. But then I can come here and sit and have a conversation with you and go, I get this now. I can tap into this and I can work this into my everyday life. Um, so I just want to give you a compliment and say that I absolutely love what you're doing because it feels even more relatable to, I think, the masses. And that's yeah. where I think you're able to have such a positive impact and, um, you know, create so much value for the people who listen to you, watch you and, and tap into your work and read your work. So um, firstly, that, that's just a thank you more so. And really, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by the, the building of the company and the building of teams. And that's a big part of what you do. Mm -hmm. When we talk about building a team without giving too much of your work away, of course, because we want people to tap in and feel like there's a, a great resource that they should really go and check out. When building a team, everyone has these individual attributes, right, that we spoke yeah. about and they can be developed, but quite often the attributes that I have may be different to yours and vice versa. When building a team, should you look to have a diversity of attributes or should we look to combine people who share attributes and are they going to share um, similar visions? Yeah, yeah. Um, as usual, it's, the answer is a little bit of both. Uh, the first thing that you have to understand that one has to do and understand about whatever team or organization <clears throat> they're, they're, looking, they're, they're in or looking to improve or looking to build is ask the question, what are the attributes required for this specific team? Because that list is going to look different depending on the team. So in other words, the list of attributes required for a SEAL team looks different than the list of attributes required for a team of teachers or a team of medical people or a team of athletes or you name it, right? So the first thing that has to happen is figure out what attributes you're looking for on a team. That list, and this is some of the work we do with organizations, we help organizations figure out that list together. Um, that list is often going to be between 10 and sometimes 30 attributes, okay? Um, you know, anywhere in between there. Uh, so you take that list and just say, we'll just use a, an even number 20. Um, so say t you have that list of 20 attributes and they're prioritized, right? Because when you do this work, you'll find that the ones that are the most important filter up to the top. So they're prioritized, the, the most important to the probably the least important. No human being can have probably a predominance of all 20 of those, okay? It's just, it's, it's fairly impossible. So, so the way you build a team, you start saying, okay, let's start getting people who have a predominance of the attributes we're looking for, and then begin to add their unique attributes to fill out the gaps, right? And so you, you, there, you know, when you, when you filter this list, you're going to find that the top three usually, we usually call those the mission critical attributes. Everybody on the team needs those top three. Right, because there's they're 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 foundational, they're critical, they're essential. But then, as you start going down the list, you're like, well, not everybody needs these other ones, right? We can have one person who has them, the other person who has a couple more, and then you start to mesh like a zipper. And so, the best teams have the same core key critical attributes. You know, that's usually between three, you know, maybe between one and three or five or something. Usually, usually between one and three, and then they all come to the table with their unique attributes that then fill out the team so that so that you now have a team of people who can lean and move and flow with each other in a way that's very mutually beneficial in a way that that you begin to maximize what you're looking for in that team and so that's how you that's how you want to think about it is that they all have the same the same critical ones but then the other ones kind of mesh together like a zipper
Yeah, I love that. And, you know, we, we can really speak to that, can't we? I think there's such a, I know in Australia, I don't know if this is more, if this is more studied and it's more, I guess it's, it's been introduced into more workplaces in America, but I definitely feel like in Australia, our workplace cultures struggle a little bit. You know, I've, I've worked in a number of corporate environments and some have been incredible. Like I was a real estate agent before I was in this. So I've worked in corporate arenas and the company that I worked for most of the time had a really good culture and they were really good at this, but I've worked in other companies that really struggled with this. Yeah. And there was a definitely a bigger emphasis on who could make the company more money in the short term, as opposed to in the long term, what the success of the company would be like because of the human beings within it. And there was a lot yeah. of clashing and there's a lot of people who didn't fit well together in that work environment. And, and I really hope that off the back of this today, you know, this, this podcast can only hold so much weight, but I hope that people within Australia continue to engage with you just off the back of our engagement here, because I think there'd be so many positives for workplaces and, and just even individuals in Australia to get amongst the work that you're doing. Do you ever get down under here and, and come out here for conferences or keynotes? Because there's actually a guy I'd love to connect you with. Um, the Australian Real Estate Conference is run by one of my podcast guests, Tom Penos, yeah. and they get some of the biggest speakers in the world to this conference. Um, they had Matthew McConaughey um, at their most recent in Gold Coast just a few weeks back, mm -hmm. and he was streamed in virtually, so that's an option too. And I just yeah. think what you're talking about right here could be so beneficial to so many people in that space. Yeah, I uh, one of our dreams, I say, are my family, <clears throat> my wife and I, is to get to Australia. I've never been there before, and so uh, so I have not been there in person. We've done some virtual events for for folks uh, in Australia, uh, but I think I, you know, the more the more demand that we could get uh, down in Australia, the more uh, likely we can get out there, uh, because I'd love to get out there and ideally get out there for you know, spend some time, right? Because it's, uh, it's, a, it's around the other side of the planet for us. So spend some time, maybe do some good work with people. Uh, so the answer, is, uh, the answer is love to get out there and, um, and any opportunities we can, we can explore to do that, we'll, we'll, we'll hop on. It definitely will. Hopefully this is a nice little catalyst for a few people to get in touch. Yeah. And hey, maybe you need to tap into Dean and say, hey, get us a spot on SAS. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I just talked to Dean yesterday on the phone. He, he called me. We, we caught up. So we're going to we're probably going to see each other in September. He's probably going to be here in the area. So so we've been talking about how we can synergize some some efforts. So that might be an option. I love it. So good to hear, mate. Before we leave, there's a bit of a closing now tradition on the podcast over the course of the last few weeks, months. And one thing that I really love in a number of podcasts that I listen to and connect with, uh, I guess these consistent themes at the back end of every show where it gives a listener or the viewer something to look forward to, where they know that guest is going to answer the same questions as the ones previous have. Yeah. And there's basically five questions that I like to tap into okay. and get an idea of, of who you are as a person for maybe someone who'll be seeing that as a trailer. Cause I upload that separately too. Yeah. Um, but also it's a really nice way just to close off a great conversation. So the Great. first is, if you had to recommend one book or one podcast to someone listening, what would it be? One book or one podcast. Okay, well, I because he's a dear friend and because I think he's doing such great work in the world, I think the podcast I would recommend is the Huberman Lab podcast. Um, mm. and, and, it, and yes, he's a dear friend, but it's also because I've always believed in today's environment, in today's society, 
uh, scientists and people who discover are they're the rock stars in my mind, right? I, I feel like we put such emphasis on Hollywood and and YouTube and these people who, and I don't want to I don't want to uh, uh, besmirch anybody, but they don't they don't contribute a lot. Um, and the people who are contributing to human beings and our society and our environment, by the way, every day are those people doing the hard work in the labs and the scientists. So so he is highlighting those people, and I think he's doing an excellent job. Um, Gosh, books. I mean, I try to read so much. Uh, I try to diversify my reading. So I think that's a very um, tough question to answer if I were to boil it down to one. But I will say uh, some of the books I love the most, in other words, I kind of go back to our, our the Yuval Harari books, Sapiens um, and, um, and Homo Deus. He has, he, he's a writer that writes about the human species and human evolution in a very fascinating, interesting way. Uh, for me, because it really highlights us as a species and why and how we've we've come the way we've come. So those are the two I would uh, recommend. I love it. Now, the second question may be a little bit controversial on this podcast. I usually ask the one skill you'd recommend mastering that significantly improved your life. Maybe I'll allow you to, to come at us with two answers here. The one skill you'd recommend mastering and the one um, attribute that you'd recommend developing that yeah. significantly improved your life. I will. Okay, so I'll, I'll yeah, I'll answer that in two ways. Uh, the first one will be the uh, the uh, attribute, and I think um, I, I'm not sure if I'm not sure if attributes can be mastered. Okay, I think attributes can be developed, and attributes can be um, can be kind of uh, executed, right? But um, but I think uh, I think those the 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 if you're gonna focus on one, focus on the great ones. And if you're going to focus on one attribute in the grit ones, focus on your courage, practice courage. All right. And, and then, and then the next one, interestingly enough, you'll agree with this is resilience, practice courage, practice resilience, practice stepping outside of your comfort zone and then practice uh, being able to recover when, when bad things happen. So those are the two skills. It's interesting one. Well, I'll answer this one by giving you a little bit of preview. I'm starting to, I'm getting, I'm starting to map out the second book. The, the second book is going to be about mastering uncertainty. Um, and what it takes to become a master of uncertainty. And there will be some skills. There are some skills that are involved in the ability to drop into any environment and perform um, and, and be, be a problem solver. So those skills I will outline in the book. Um, but I think part of those skills involve your ability to, and again, I know there's an attribute called compartmentalization, but the, the ability to compartmentalize uh, takes some skill. And, um, and I'm going to map out those skills in this, in this project. But but to give people just a little bit of taste, uh, one of the things that one someone should practice doing on a consistent basis is the skill of asking better questions. Um, our brains are uh, question answering machines, and when we when we plug a question into our frontal lobe, our brain has no choice but to come up with answers. And oftentimes we do this, uh, but we do this the wrong way. We say things like, "Why am I so bad at this? Uh, why are these people out to get me? Why are why is this? Why does things always happen to me?" As soon as you ask that question, your brain is going to start giving you answers, and I guarantee they're not going to be empowering. And so <clears throat> every single high performer uh, that I've ever experienced, and I learned this trick in high school, they take conscious control of the questions they ask themselves on a consistent mm -hmm. basis. They ask better ones. They ask better questions. And I'm a true believer, both, uh, both um, experientially and philosophically, that the quality of our lives is directly proportional to the quality of questions we ask ourselves on a consistent basis, right? We ask ourselves better questions. We focus on better things. We go better directions. And that's a skill that can be practiced and developed. 
Mate, that's an answer and a half. I love that. And I want to quickly comment on what you said just there about asking great questions. You actually, on the Lewis Howes podcast, which I listened to this morning before we, we tapped into our chat here today, there's one thing you said that I really loved and really agreed with, and I'm definitely guilty of, of not doing it at times, but you said when you effectively ask a question and you're effectively listening because you care about the response that that person's going to give, you can't, if you like, if you're truly listening, you're not just going to fire back with advice. Right. Like you need to sit with that. You need to actually process what someone's saying. And I thought that was such a good recommendation because I know at times, and I actually today when I was asking mates questions and checking on a few people in my life, I was trying to be really present with that. Like instead of just tapping into like wanting to help all the time, sometimes the most helpful thing is actually sitting there and absorbing what someone's saying. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah, people and I'm want so to be guilty of that. To, yeah. yeah, yeah, we all are. Don't feel bad. We all are. We all typically approach conversations with this idea of when someone's speaking and I'm listening, I'm thinking about A, either what I'm going to say next or B, how what that person's saying relates to me. And this is not a malicious act. We're trying to actually, we're trying to do it because we think it'll actually help us uh, relate to this human being. The problem is when we do that, we're taking focus away from them and we're placing it on us. And so the, the trick to true empathetic listening and, and by empathetic listening, I mean listening that allows someone to feel like they are cared about, they cared for, uh, is to, as you're listening to someone, be completely engaged. And as they're saying things to you, if something's coming to your head, you basically pretend it's a whiteboard and you, you, you wipe it away and you are fully present, you're fully hearing them. Um, then when you listen to someone, they will truly start to feel cared for. They will feel like you care about them as a human being. They feel like they will feel heard because that's really what people want. They want to be heard. Yeah, it's so true, mate. I love that. The third question I wanted to ask was, if you could identify one challenge in your life that's required the most growth to over overcome, what would that be? Um, probably, uh, probably my own self-discipline. Um, I am not a self-disciplined person. I never have been. Self-discipline is, is difficult for me. Um, and, uh, and so the, the ability to kind of be resolute in my, in my own behavior when no one, when the, when the external world has no, has no say in it, it's like, Hey, this is you, uh, you know, telling yourself what to do. Um, that's something that I have always, um, practiced and still, still do struggle with on, on occasion. And I kind of make a joke. I mean, none of human beings holistically, we don't like to be told what to do, right? We just, because we're, that's kind of the whole butts up against our freedom, right? So we hate to be told mm -hmm. what to do. I'm someone who doesn't even like to tell myself what to do, right? So I, so I say, hey, uh, you're, I'm going to get up and do this or work out or do that. Like, don't tell me what to do, right? I don't like it, right? So, um, so for me, it's been self-discipline. Um, it probably always will be, and that's something that I'm continually um, uh, in the in the uh, in the dance with. I guess is a good way to say it. So. Yeah, it's, and it's so interesting because it sounds like such a contrast to what people would believe of a Navy SEAL. Yeah, yeah. Right? But, yeah. Well, but I mean, think... again, but, but, you know, it's interesting because, you know, Navy SEALs, whatever, whatever endeavor, anybody you see out there, and you know this because you are a success, anybody that you see out there who has been successful, again, all those, all the people are seeing is the success part. They don't see all the struggle that's gotten them there. It's kind of like this, this Michael Jordan saying, it's like, I did, I did 10,000 free throw shots. I failed 
10,000 times, you know, um, all those failures are invisible to people when they see someone who's at the, at the, who, who's succeeded. And so, um, and so that struggle is, is, is present for anybody who's succeeded and it continues for people who succeed. Those, those people who are serial succeeders, they are people who have also become serial, uh, uh, challengers and pushers and workers and and they've they've serialized their ability to kind of go through grit and and things like that so so yeah it, it might sound surprising but um it's the underpinning of any successful person or any success is a bunch of struggle and so when people hear it's like oh my gosh i can't believe you struggle you know everybody who you see there's there's i, I know there's exceptions there's some, some people who who have just made it right but um uh but that's not the that's a, that's a low percentage you know what? And even to that, though, I spoke about this on a podcast recently. I had an Australian hip hop artist, B-Wise, on the podcast, and we spoke about those people in, um, we're referring to the music space or any space in life, who just kind of stumble into success. And ultimately what happens, well, what I seem to think happens, is short term it's sweet and it's all going, you know, rosy. And then a little bit of adversity comes in because they haven't actually built the grit or mm -hmm. they don't have the attributes to to push through the adversity, to be resilient, then it kind of falls off. Uh, I yeah. don't think they're ever the people who are long-term successful. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. I, and I would say, I mean, there's some people, I, kind of life is interesting. And, and, and there are some people who I, I kind of, I, I relate it to Mount Everest, okay? Um, and where we're born matters. And there are some people who are born and they're only about 10 feet from the peak, right? That's just, that's their lot in life. They're, they don't have far to go to be at the top of Mount Everest. There are some people who are born, they're not even in Tibet yet, right? I mean, so so depending on where you were born, I say, yeah, Nepal, I guess, um, where you're born matters, you know, so our, our lot in life matters. And just because of the way nature is, because of the way the world is, sometimes you are born in a position where the struggle is a lot more to get to that peak, you know? And I think those who are who are born closer to the top sometimes don't understand the work it takes and so when they get to the top it's not it's not appreciated as much maybe and it's not um and it's not uh it's not cherished as much so therefore uh it, it, it when adversity comes when things when things kind of bend it's you often see you often see people kind of take a stumble yeah most definitely the fourth question is if there was a daily ritual or routine that you like to keep within your day that you feel sets you up for an element of success or happiness in your day to day, what would that be? Well, I think, um, you know, it, that's going to be subjective for everybody. I think gratitude is probably the most important one and how you, how you experience gratitude is going to be up to you. Uh, there are some people who will sit down and write, what am I grateful for? Um, and think about it that way. And there are some people who are, who go surfing, you know, and, and think about it that way. Uh, for me, I, I mean, I have my family here and I, you know, I spent 20 years in the military and the large portion of it was leaving them. And, uh, and that was hard for all of us and my two boys and my wife. And, and now that I'm home, you know, after, you know, I retired in 17, so I've been home for a while. I'm so grateful to be home. So I hug and kiss my kids every day and my wife. I tell them I love them as much as possible. That for me is a gratitude practice uh, that I would not miss. Um, uh, every day I do it, even when I'm traveling, I try to do it, but I, you, you, I feel a deficit when I travel. So I think, I think that's a ritual that I have that feeds into this idea of gratitude, because again, if you are, 
if you are able to get yourself to a truly grateful place, first of all, biochemically, it's phenomenal what the biochemistry is happening in your body, the, 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 the positive chemicals that your body's creating from that emotion of gratitude. Um, but also, it's, it's almost impossible to feel depressed. It's almost impossible to feel unmotivated. It's almost impossible to feel unhappy. Um, and you also put things into context and perspective because there's so many people out there who are suffering um, miserably. And, um, and to understand, oh, you know what? I have it pretty good. You know, I'm really grateful <clears throat> for where I am, who I am, where I was dropped off, when, you know, when I was, when I was born, the, the, the distance from the peak. And I'm, gra I'm grateful for the challenge and the struggles I've been given to achieve. And so I think gratitude practice in whatever form that anybody can practice it is, is, the, is the one thing. Mate, so beautifully said. The last question, and what I would seem to think is, you know, well, in my opinion, the most important of the five yeah. is if there was one message that you could share with the world and encourage them to act on it, what would that message be? Um, it would be that um, in the in the con in the conduct and the exploration and the pursuit of any goal, it's really important to understand that it's not always going to feel like you're heading towards the objective. And so again, I'll use the mountain. I'll use the rock climber as an example. <clears throat> the rock climber looks at the, the the peak or the cliff that he or she wants to climb and says, "Okay, the outcome is the top. Obviously, I got to get to the top." And then usually we'll proceed to map out a just a, a rough sketch of how they think they're going to climb that rock. Uh, but they understand that they're not going to figure it out until they get climbing. They have to start climbing. And as they're climbing, they're going to recognize at some point, and probably on several points, that, that the original path that they saw or they thought they saw is not actually going to effectively get them there. They're going to have to change their approach. And sometimes in changing their approach, they're going to have to look over and the next best handhold or foothold is actually like over there to the right and down which means they have to move down and away from their goal to get to the next handhold or football foothold. And in, in, in doing so may even actually lose sight of the, of the top of the, of the peak. So the, the, the analogy is that when you're in the pursuit of any goal, um, sometimes it's going to feel like you're moving away from it. Sometimes it's going to feel like you you've lost sight of it, but just focus on that next handhold or foothold, right. And you will get there. And so I always say kind of, be resolute in the outcome, but be flexible in your approach. And that's how that's how you should approach any goal. Um, make a make a rough plan, say, okay, and then and then get moving on it. And then just be flexible as you go and understand that it's not always going to be rosy and pretty. And it's not always going to feel great. Just make sure you're focusing on the next handhold and foothold. Such a powerful message, mate. It, Rich, it's been such a pleasure to sit here and chat with you. And I know you probably hear that from everyone that you sit down on a podcast with, but I truly mean it. One of the biggest joys for me in what I do is, like I said, I get to learn from incredible people. But there's something that I love at the end of every podcast, and, and I can honestly say it rings true with you. I'm not only a fan of your work, but I'm a fan of you as a man. Now, having had the opportunity to chat and hear about your story, what you're about, and I can visibly see that the human being that you are, you'd have such a value and such an impact on the people around you in your life. You've had an impact on me. So I want to say thank you so much for being a part of a lot to talk about. Thank you for sharing your messages, your learnings with our audience and with myself. And I really want to encourage absolutely everyone who's tapped into today's interview to go ahead and look at the show notes. I'm going to have all of Rich's links to his social medias, all of the links to the websites that you can go and tap into the work, the books, 
because this is really work that we can all benefit so much from. So mate, the pleasure has been all mine. And you gave me a very nice compliment early on in the podcast and said that um, you admire my grit. But let me tell you, mate, I think it compares nothing to yours. So um, like I said, I'm a fan and it's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you, Bradley. Uh, you, you, you're a story and you inspire me as well. So I appreciate the time. I look forward to our continued relationship. This has been a, a, a fun conversation. So thanks for, thanks for having me.